Anyway, last week, you know that we finished the Gospel of John after preaching on it for a couple of years, and we talked about this cartoon. You remember this cartoon? Guys at the door, have you found Jesus? And there's Jesus hiding behind the curtain. You know, um, if Jesus really is the Word of God through whom all things have been created, he really is everywhere and somehow behind every curtain. And so this morning, I'd like to start a little mini-series. I meant to mention this last week, but forgot. Little mini-series called Jesus Everywhere. And so over the next uh, few months, I don't know how long we'll, we'll go, we'll look for Jesus in uh, all these strange places, including a manger. Well, this has been kind of a crazy week for me, and so I kind of wanted to start with Jacob and Esau, but I think we'll Look at that in a, a few weeks. Crazy week, didn't have as much time as I, I wanted to, so I realized I needed to do something that I had kind of preached on before, actually six years ago, a, a verse, though, that I find utterly fascinating. In 2 Samuel 11 and 12, Jesus in the midst of adultery, murder, rape, Jesus in the midst of the stronghold of the king of shame. Let's pray. And so, Lord Jesus, would you be here in our midst and would you cause us to preach and believe your gospel. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. David, the king of Israel, David, the legendary warrior, stayed home on his couch. On a date in high school with my hot girlfriend, Susan Coleman, um, I was driving north on Broadway in Littleton, turning left onto Littleton Boulevard when I pulled up behind this, this Jeep. And the fellow that was in the back seat, he, he turned around and he spoke sign language to me. Uh, amazingly, it was the only sign language that I knew. <laughs> but, but he spoke it to me and immediately a vision flashed through my brain it was this. Clint Eastwood. I don't know about you young kids today, but in my day, no one was as bad attitude as, <laughs> as Clint Eastwood. I mean, he didn't take crap from no one. This vision flashed through, through my brain. You feel lucky, punk? Go ahead. Make my day. So anyway, this punk spoke this finger. Sign language to me. And I spoke sign language back to him. I mean, I, he shamed me, and so I shamed me. I shamed him. He, shame against shame. And the light turned green. He, he started driving, and I started driving, and we turned off of Littleton Boulevard, and the Jeep turned around and started following us. And I sped up, and the Jeep would speed up. I'd slow down, the Jeep would slow down. At a stop sign on Cayley, these guys in the Jeep, three guys, they, they start screaming. They jump out of the Jeep. They run and jump on the VW bus. The orange VW bus are screaming and shaking and everything, so I drive off. I drive off silently praying, desperately praying. Praying, not out loud so that my hot girlfriend would hear, but underneath my breath I was praying, oh Jesus, 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 please let mom and dad and help you home. Let them, let them be humble. Jesus didn't answer my prayer. Uh, so when I got home, I pulled up in the driveway. The Jeep came screeching up behind me. These guys jumped out of their Jeep screaming, hey dude, you flipped us off. And I said, well you flipped me off first. Did not, did you, did not, did you. One guy had a bat, another guy had a bag of BBs or lead shot, and the third guy had nunchucks. Did not, did you, did not, did you. And then finally, this negotiations broke down. <laughs> This one guy screamed, you want to fight, man? And I, um, acting as if normally I would want to fight, I said, well, not really. You see, I'm on a date. So I'm on a date, so I don't, I don't want to 
fight you now, and besides, there's three of you and one of me. And the guy that gave me the sign language, he screamed, well, then we'll take turns, which was, which was really a civilized gesture, I thought, you know. <laughs> but I declined. I kept on negotiating for about 30 more minutes out on the lawn in front of my parents' house, and finally they left with some disparaging comments regarding my masculinity, and I felt such incredible shame. Felt shame. I was shamed. And check this out. I wanted to fight. I wanted to shame somebody else in order to hide my shame. I wanted to fight. I just didn't want to lose. I only wanted to win. Well, as I reflected on that incident later, how they flipped me off, how they were driving around with weapons in their hands, how they tried to make me look bad, it occurred to me, hey, I think those guys were like just looking for a fight. Like warriors looking for a war. Why is it that so many guys, I mean, especially guys, maybe, maybe gals too, maybe even babies, I don't know, but why is it that so many guys are, are just like looking for a war? You know what I mean? We go to war for, for bad motives, but, but is that partly because we've lost the good motive, the, the, the good reason? We, we go to war for bad reasons, but maybe we've lost the good reason. I mean, is it possible that we were made to be warriors but we've just lost sight of our war. You know, there are an awful lot of admirable qualities in a soldier, right? Courage, perseverance, strength, faithfulness, self-sacrifice. So many admirable qualities in a warrior, unless, of course, they're fighting the wrong war. I mean, we talk about the qualities of our soldiers, but, but very rarely the great qualities of our enemy soldiers. And, Great, great things about a soldier unless they're in the wrong, wrong war. Well, why are so many guys like just looking for a fight, looking for a war? It's not just high school. It gets worse later, maybe even more sophisticated. Instead of nunchucks and bats, our weapons are degrees and awards and finances and corporate takeovers and trophy wives and uh, church size and good deeds, spirituality even. And with them, we go to war but not war against shame. We go to war to hide our shame. Well, anyway, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, all of Israel and even the Ark of the Covenant are at war. They're, they're at war, but David stays home. Israel was besieging Rabbah of the Ammonites. Rabbah is modern-day Ammon. Uh, that's, I guess, where uh, the Ammonites got their name. At the time, the Ammonites worshipped Molech. And they believed that their king was like the physical representation somehow of Molech on earth. The worship of Molech appears to have included child cult prostitution. And most certainly, the sacrifice of infants to the fire. Most scholars think Molech means king of shame. Israel was battling the king of shame, a demonic principality that consumed human life. Jeremiah prophesied that one day Molech would be sent into exile, but that God would restore the fortunes of the Ammonites. You see, Israel really wasn't battling the Ammonites, not flesh and blood. They were battling uh, Molech, the principality and power. The problem was that they couldn't extract Molech from the Ammonites. But according to Jesus, we can. His followers can. Jesus gave us authority to cast out demons. And it's really an awesome and wonderful and amazing thing to see if you've never, never seen it, a real exorcism. I don't think that we're supposed to just go around casting demons out of everything. They, they didn't in Scripture, and yet Paul does say that they are the, the things that, that we battle. Uh, we battle against them. Paul wrote, we battle not against flesh and blood. 
but against principalities and powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against this spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. And it's awesome to see them manifest and see the power of Jesus come. But, but you see, we battle them all the time, cast them out perhaps even all the time. We battle Satan, the accuser. Did you know that's his name? Gosh, that sounds an awful lot like Molech, king of shame. So how do you fight the king of shame? Can you conquer the king of shame with swords and shields and bows and arrows? We've got a war on terror. How do you fight terror? I mean, can you conquer terror with guns and tanks and bombs? We can conquer countries with those things. But terror? If we fight terror with terror, if we fight shame with more shame, how do we ever expect to conquer the king of shame. Well, anyway, like I was saying, perhaps you were made to be a warrior, but have you found your war? In one of his books, C.S. Lewis describes the joy of one of his characters. When he finds himself in a battle with the embodiment of Satan, he writes this, the joy came at last from finding out at last what hatred was made for. As a boy with an axe rejoices in finding a tree, so we rejoice in the perfect congruity between his emotion and its object. Perfect congruity between an emotion and its object. You know, I think we're all kind of angry. I mean, walking through this world, don't you get angry? And yet we don't quite know who to be angry at. We're angry because this world is broken and something inside of us demands justice. It needs to be fixed. In recent years, some have been angry at me and a suggestion that I've made that I believe the Bible makes and that is that perhaps the Lamb of God really takes away the sins of the world. The world. And perhaps God really has mercy on all as Paul says in the book of Romans. And I think they get mad at me because they think forgiving all is the same as laying down the sword and giving up the fight. But I suspect that they have not yet encountered the one that we're fighting, nor picked up the sword with which we slay him. Well, Scripture says, hate what is evil. And you know, evil is absence. There's no substance. I think Satan is evil. He was a murderer and a liar from the beginning says Jesus, and there is no truth in him. So how do you battle Satan? How do you battle the king of shame? With more shame? How do you fight evil? With, with more evil? I mean, are, or maybe do you put it in some kind of eternal container and preserve it endlessly? George MacDonald wrote this, only good where evil was is evil dead. And so how do you fight the king of shame? In 2 Samuel 11, David was not fighting the king of shame. David was a warrior who had lost his war and found his couch. I, I have that drawing uh, hanging on the wall in my office. Actually, Chachi, is Chachi here this morning? Yeah, there's Chachi. Chachi Hernandez um, drew this for me, framed it for me, gave it to me uh, after he heard the sermon they preached six years ago, which I titled Warriors on Their Couches. And it's a great reminder hanging on my office up, upstairs. 2 Samuel 11, verse 1, David is on his couch. Verse 2, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David is a warrior, and now he has something to conquer. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. 
And what did David feel? Shame. He felt shame. And so what does David do? He goes to war, but not with shame. He goes to war to cover his shame, uh, protect his shame, insulate his shame. He goes to war not with shame, but to cover his shame. I I suspect you know the story. David sends for Uriah and arranges for Uriah to sleep with Bathsheba so that the baby will appear to be Uriah's. But Uriah refuses to sleep with his wife in his home because his fellow Israelites in the Ark of the Covenant sleep in tents at war out in the field. Uriah is a great warrior. And so what does David feel? More shame. And so he tries to hide the shame. Not face the shame, hide the shame. He arranges for Uriah to be killed in battle against the Ammonites. He sacrifices Uriah to the king of shame, then takes Bathsheba as his own. Verse 27, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Literally, the thing David had done is evil in the eyes of the Lord. Evil. And it would appear that Molech, who consumes men, women, and children, it would appear that Molech won. God's child Uriah is murdered. God's daughter Bathsheba is raped. And God's son David is imprisoned in the stronghold of shame. It would appear that Molech, king of shame, won. As he had won with the Ammonites, as he wins, it appears even today with rape, abortion, murder, divorce, as he appears to win over all the world with people enslaved and driven by shame. Their ego, their shame. John writes, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. It appears that Moloch, who is Satan or a demon of Satan, it appears that Moloch wins, and it appears that Moloch won. Moloch won in Israel because David was not fighting God's war. David was fighting his own war. And in fighting his own war, he ended up fighting for Moloch. If we're not battling for our Lord, we end up battling for Moloch, king of shame. Jesus said, who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather scatters. In the words of Bob Dylan, you got to serve somebody. It might be the devil or it might be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. So why are you married? Why are you single? Why do you go to work? Why do you go to school? Why do you make money? Why do you breathe? (laughs) Why do you do good deeds? Who are you fighting for? Is it you and your kingdom? To win your dignity and cover your shame? Is Is it you? If so, you're really fighting for Moloch. Who are you fighting for? Do you know? You've taken world history, and and you know that warriors on their couches, warriors without a war, are a frightening proposition, for they will be conscripted. They will be conscripted by someone or something. David was conscripted to conquer Bathsheba, consume Uriah, and even challenge the Lord God for the throne. David was conscripted by Molech, for he was already enslaved to Molech. David was in hell. Psalm 86, 13, King James Version, that's what he calls it. How do you battle the king of shame while imprisoned in shame? David was imprisoned in the stronghold of the king of shame. But the king of glory rises from his couch, straps on his sword, and goes to war for David. Chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, David, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. 
Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So the poor man cherishes the lamb. The rich man consumes the lamb. It's like Uriah is the poor man, Bathsheba, or David is the rich man, and Bathsheba is the lamb. And yet it's not just Bathsheba that is the lamb. We'll discover that David sins against, against another lamb, this lamb, and this lamb alone, as if this lamb was slaughtered when David slaughtered Uriah as if this lamb was consumed when David consumed Bathsheba. And so anyway, Nathan tells this story. David gets furious and he pronounces the death sentence, actually his own death sentence, on this man with no mercy. Then Nathan says, David, you are the man. He prophesies, saying, thus says the Lord, why have you despised the word of the Lord. You have despised the word of the Lord. Who's the word of the Lord? We just preached through John, so we know. The word of the Lord is the light. And the word is the lamb. And in the revelation, we see it. He's the Lord of hosts, the great and dreadful warrior. And so he says through Nathan to David, now therefore, David, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will rise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. There may be nothing more public than what you do in private. What you have whispered in secret will be proclaimed from the rooftops, says Jesus. The Lord tells David that what he did in secret will happen to him for all to see in the sight of the sun on the rooftop. It's almost as if God is saying, David, my son, as you wounded me, so now your son will wound you. And you know the story. One of David's sons, Amnon, rapes one of David's daughters, Tamar. Another of David's sons, Ab Absalom, then mur mur murders Amnon to cover the shame because Tamar was Absalom's sister. Then Absalom despises his father and overthrows David's rule, just as David despised God and overthrew his rule. I mean, it's like David and his entire family is delivered up to Molech for the destruction of the flesh, that prison of shame. Absalom overthrows David, and then to demonstrate his victory, Absalom, David's son, has sex with ten of David's wives on the roof in the sun before all Israel, the very roof from which David lusted after Bathsheba. You see, it's like David is sentenced to feel, sentenced to feel for Amnon, Tamar, Absalom, and his ten brides just a little of what God feels for Uriah, Bathsheba, David, and all of Israel, his bride. When, Abs when David finds out that Absalom has been killed, he cries out in agony. He cries out, oh, if only I had died in his place. Verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. The Lord has put away your sin. In other words, it is Forgiven. Did, did you get that? Forgiven, and yet David will still feel all of this pain. That means that that pain isn't punishment, right? It's not retribution or even anger. It's discipline. So to know God's mercy, perhaps you have to see your sin and taste its pain. You have to face the shame. To know forgiveness, perhaps you have to know what it is you're forgiven for. Nathan says, the Lord has put away your sin. He's put your sin away. Where has he put it? Next verse. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you 
shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. The child born to you, the son of David, will die. The sin has been placed on the son of David. You want justice? Where's your sin? The sin has been placed on the son of David, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Isaiah 53, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, like a lamb, say, in, in Hebrew, can mean sheep or goats, like a lamb led to the slaughter, the son of David. You see, the son of David is your scapegoat. Whenever we preach the depths of God's grace, people inevitably say, if, if it ends up all forgiven, why not sin? I mean, why not sin that grace may abound? Why not? Because all of our sin is loaded upon Jesus. Do you love him? You know, it's like every time you, you choose to sin, you, you kill the Christ child. Every time you sin, you, you pound the nails. Why not sin? That's why not. Do you love the son of David? Well, David learned to love the son of David and then watched him die. <laughs> wow. To know God's mercy, perhaps we need to taste how much it cost him. We need to watch the son of David die. Verse 15, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with, with them. On the seventh day, on the seventh day, the child died on the seventh day. That's the end of day six by our reckoning when God finished creation. When Jesus cried from the cross, it is finished. Verse 20, then David arose from the earth. You know, one day you will rise from the earth. Then David arose from the earth when the son of David died. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes and he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He worshiped. Do, do you remember how when Israel would go to war in the Old Testament, God would have them place the choir in front of the army to worship? Check that out. Oh, the son of David died. David rose and then worshiped. Wouldn't you like to know what he said? Well, you do. It's Psalm 51, Psalm 51, to the choir master, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, your hesed, your mercy. Against you, verse four, against you and you only have I sinned and have done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Did you catch that? David's sin against the lamb displays the justice of God and the glory of his judgment. Jesus is God's judgment. Verse 6, behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. Jesus is the truth. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God. 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. People trapped in shame will return to you. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do you realize that David wrote over half of the Psalms? And what is that? That's the word of God. That's also the word of David's testimony. Revelation 12, 11, we conquer the accuser by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. The word, the word of God born of David, born out of his sin, his sorrow, and his shame. You know, beautiful things can be born out of sin, sorrow, and shame. The child dies. David worships.
His servants wonder at his strange behavior. So he says this, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Where is the son of David? He has descended into hell. Sheol is the Old Testament word. The grave, the pit. And David will join him. But they will not stay dead. St. Paul wrote this about the son of David. If we are joined with him in a death like his, we will surely be joined with him in a resurrection like his. The son of David dies, but maybe the Lord is still gracious to David. I mean, maybe he's more gracious than we possibly, or David could possibly even begin to understand. Verse 24, next verse, then David comforted his wife. He didn't take her like he took her before. He had mercy on her. He loved the lamb. David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son. And he called his name Solomon. Solomon means peaceful. He's literally Prince of Peace, Solomon, and the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. It means beloved of the Lord. So check this out. A son of David died because of David's sin, and a son of David rose out of David's sin, and this risen son of David is like the fruit of David's confession. Jesus said, bear fruit that fits, befits repentance. And, and, and did you notice, or uh, did you realize, I mean, maybe you don't realize this, that, that Bathsheba is actually Jesus' great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother. So think about that. If it weren't for David's sin, could we even know Jesus? Well, the Prince of Peace, Solomon, is born right out of David's sin, sorrow, and shame. He's born right out from under the dominion of Moloch. I mean, it's like he's born in some stinking manger somewhere out in a barn. And the government will be upon his shoulders, the prince of peace. So if you feel like a failure, you've racked with guilt, the baby's died, well, surrender your shame. And good news, the prince of peace is born in your manger. Well, Solomon ascends to the throne. He builds the temple. He accomplishes the greatest deeds in all Israelite history, the son of David. But remember, there were two sons of David in this story. One that bore David's sin and descended into Sheol, like the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement, like the sin offering on every high holy day, and the other that rose from David's ashes and built the house of God like a pleasing offering, the good deed, the spotless lamb, two sons of David that you know are one son of David. His name is Jesus of the house and lineage of David. He is Lord of hosts. He is the strong arm of the Lord God Almighty, the Word of God. He is the dread warrior, and that's how he delivers David from the stronghold of shame. A baby. <laughs> born in a manger, David's place of shame. Well, in the next paragraph, 2 Samuel, David defeats the Ammonites. It's a sign, I would suppose, for if David is free, Israel is not yet free. In just a hundred years, evil King Ahab and his wife Jezebel will sacrifice infants to the fire to Molech in the valley of Gehenna right outside the gates of Jerusalem. David defeated the Ammonites with his sword of steel. But Molech, king of shame, was not yet defeated. Satan is not defeated in space and time, not defeated until Jesus, the son of David, Lord of hosts, arm of the Lord, word of God, dread warrior, until Jesus hangs on the tree of the edge of the seventh day and cries, it is finished, where he bears our sin to destruction in the eternal fire of our Father's love and where he gives his life to us, his spirit born in the manger. That is us. And now he is the word of God born in us. The two-edged sword that we speak. The gospel that slays the king of shame. 
the word of grace. You see, Jesus Christ and him crucified is our judgment, our discipline, our redemption, and our sanctification. And it's all mercy. How do you battle the king of shame? With mercy, the word of mercy. It was mercy that sent Nathan to David and judged David as unmerciful. It was mercy that disciplined David and made him feel the pain of his sin so he could then feel mercy. It was mercy that offered the son of David to die. The son of David is also, you know, the son of God. To know mercy, David tastes the price of mercy, the price of redemption. It was mercy that gave birth to Solomon. It was mercy that gave birth to the Psalms in David, the word of God, born of David. It was mercy that gave birth to mercy in David, a new heart in David, the sanctification of David. Mercy that made David into the image of mercy, that sanctification. You see, God is mercy. He is hesed. He is covenant love. And so when we preach mercy of God, Upon all creation, we're not laying down the sword. We're picking it up. And we're proclaiming judgment. We're going to war with Satan on behalf of all creation. Mercy is the sword, the very word of God and presence of Christ. He's already conquered, but he's called us to proclaim his victory in space and time and even manifest his victory. So, So forgiving all is not laying down the sword. Forgiving all is not laying down the sword, but picking up the sword and thrusting it into the gut of the king of shame. What could hurt the accuser more? than the proclamation and the very presence of grace. That's the end of the accuser. You know, Jesus is called the son of David, but he's also called the son of man. Just as he was born out of David's failure, he is born of your failure. When you stop hiding your shame, but instead surrender your shame. The Son of Man is born in your manger, not your palace, but your stinky manger. The one forgiven much loves much, and God is love. The one forgiven much loves much, and then through you, he battles the king of shame. You are a warrior then who has found his war, found her war. Now, if you didn't get all that I was just saying, this is your homework. You go to Blockbuster or Safeway and you need to rent this movie, okay? Grand Torino. <laughs> Directed by Clint Eastwood and starring Clint Eastwood, the most bad a- attitude dude that <laughs> ever lived. In the movie, he plays an old warrior, Walt Kowalski, a Korean war hero. He's, he's imprisoned in shame, though. A, a war hero that seems haunted by shame. His wife has died. He lives alone, sitting on the couch. But every now and then, a young priest comes and visits him because his wife, before she died, made the priest promise they would get Walt to go to confession because she knows he's trapped. Walt's a warrior. He's a warrior without a war. And so he, he pretty much declares a war of grumpiness upon everyone that he meets, especially the Hmong refugee families moving into his neighborhood in Detroit. Well, one night, this teenage Hmong boy named Tao tries to uh, steal his beloved Gran Torino. Unsuccessfully, he tries. It's an initiation into a gang that he is being forced to join and doesn't want to join. Well, once he's caught, Tao's mother makes Tao do work for Walt as penance, and eventually, grudgingly, they become friends. You know, Walt is estranged from his sons, and Tao has no father, and so Walt begins to teach Tao how how to be a man, how to be a man. When Tao refuses to join the Hmong gang, the one terrorizing the neighborhood, trapping everyone in shame, the gang shoots up Tao's house. Then kidnaps and rapes Tao's sister. Well, Tao turns to Walt, of course, to help him get revenge, help him get justice. Walt thinks for a while and then tells Tao to return later that afternoon. Then Walt begins to make preparations, even goes to church and confesses some of his sins. 
Now, this preach, priest, he, he catches on. He knows what happened in town that night, and he tries to stop Walt. He expects Dirty Harry, the outlaw Josie Wales, and the High Plains Drifter, you know, to show up all at once in the middle of town. Well, Tao returns to, to Walt's house that afternoon, and Walt takes him down into the basement to show him his guns. And then he gives Tao his Medal of Honor. He tricks Tao, and he locks him in the basement, locks Tao in the basement, and then Walt finishes things. Walt! Walt! What are you doing? What are you doing? Huh? Relax. You can't get out of there. You let me out right now. Let me out! You want to know what it's like to kill a man? Well, it's goddamn awful, that's what it is. The only thing worse is getting a Medal of Valor for killing some poor kid that wanted to just give up, that's all. Yeah, some scared little gook just like you. I shot him right in the face with that rifle you were holding in there a while ago. It's not a day goes by that I don't think about it. You don't want that on your soul. I got blood on my hands. I'm soiled. That's why I'm going it alone tonight. Well, you take me with you right now. Let me out! Look, you've come a long way. I'm proud to say that you're my friend, but you've got your whole life ahead of you. But me, I finish things. That's what I do. And I'm going it alone. No! Wait! Wall! 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 I didn't think your ass would have came. Shut up, Goop. I got nothing to say to you. Yeah, yeah. You go ahead and watch out for your boyfriend. Because it was either he or you or someone who raped one of their own family. Your own blood, for Christ's sake. Now go ahead and pull those pistols like miniature cowboys. Go ahead. So where's Tao at? Don't worry about Tao. Tao's got not one second for you. Says who? You? <laughs> Kinda jumpy, aren't we? A light? He's an old warrior who finally found his war. He'd been imprisoned in shame. Tao had been imprisoned in shame. The whole neighborhood, even the gangbangers, were imprisoned in shame, especially them. But Walt went to war against shame, with mercy, holding a light, a lighter. It wasn't perfect mercy, but it was mercy. And in so doing, he drew their fire and exposed the evil for all to see, a neighborhood of witnesses who finally have the courage to testify. And so he set the neighborhood free, maybe even those gangbangers free from the, from the dominion of shame. So he exposed evil, breaking the bondage of evil, disciplining those trapped in shame. He even bore evil to destruction in his own flesh. He bore evil to destruction and gave his life to Tao, his valor to Tao, even his grand Torino to Tao. 
He left a testament. He left a word. He left a will. The Grand Trino goes to Tao. So what Tao had stolen, he gave. That's grace. He was an old warrior that finally found his war. Well, stretched out like that on the ground, didn't he kind of remind you of somebody else? Someone who finishes things, especially the dominion of the king of shame. God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did you know that when Jesus said that, he was quoting David? Or maybe David had been quoting Jesus. It's Psalm 22. It starts like that and it ends like this. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generations. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it, that it is accomplished that it is finished. That's the word of God, born in David, spoken by David about 1,000 B.C. He really is everywhere. And it appears that David found his war and his weapon. 3,000 years later, the Psalms are the most, like the most widely read literature in the world for 3,000 years they've gone to war repeatedly breaking the dominion of shame the most repeated line in all the Psalms is this declaration of worship the steadfast love of the Lord the mercy of the Lord the hasad of the Lord endures forever so you see you don't have to get shot like Walt Kowalski you don't even have to be physically crucified like Jesus the Christ but if you die to yourself and speak the word of mercy in Jesus' name, if you say in Jesus' name, you are forgiven, then, my friends, you are a warrior who's found his war, found her war. You're not battling your rebellious teenager. You are battling for your rebellious teenager against the king of shame. You are not battling pornographers and abortion doctors and gangbangers. You are battling for pornographers and abortion doctors and gangbangers against the king of shame. You are not battling religious types, Pharisees. Did you know that? You're not battling Pharisees. You're battling for Pharisees against the king of shame. You're a warrior. And this is your weapon. The judgment of God, the word of God, the steadfast love that is God. For when he was delivered up, he took bread and he broke it. 
saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper and having given thanks, the son of David and the son of man took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you, and do it in remembrance of me. And so he calls you. He calls you to come to his table. He conscripts you in his war. He says, come to my table and pick up your sword. This is your sword. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would manifest yourself in us and we would fight your war because your war is already won and you are exhibiting to us the power of your grace and the wonder of your mercy. And so, Father, it's in Jesus' name that we thank you. We can even thank you for this war because with the war, you turn us into your warriors. The image of the Son of David and Son of Man, Jesus the Christ. In Jesus' name, we thank you, Lord God. Amen. So, bring your manger, all right, and receive the Word of God. In Jesus' name, believe the gospel. Amen. And so, Lord Jesus, you make beautiful things out of dust. Father, you make beautiful things out of dust. It was out of David's sin, the death of Uriah, the pain of Bathsheba. Out of all of that, you made Jesus. And Jesus, out of our shame and our suffering and our sin, you make us into the people that we are to be, the image of you, the King of grace. So, Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you. Amen. And so, I mean, I, I want you to hear me. Do you ever get mad? Right? You just walk around this earth and you get angry, right? Because there's injustice, there's evil, there's stuff that ticks you off. I mean, sometimes people say, Peter, in your sermon you seem mad. And I go, yeah, I am mad because I really hate evil. It's just, it's evil. It's just evil, evil, evil. You get mad. Maybe that's because you were made to be a warrior. And I'm just reminding you about your war. You battle not against flesh and blood. You battle not Democrats. You battle not Republicans. You battle not Afghans. You get battle not gangbangers and prostitutes or your relatives this week at Thanksgiving dinner. Remember that. You battle the king of shame and you carry a sword, a sword that smites the nations, sets the captives free, and brings them home. In Jesus' name, believe the gospel and speak the gospel. Amen?